Let's stand for the reading of God's word. We're back in this small letter written by Jude as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. I'll be reading the final two verses of Jude, verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Father, as these words were written by your servant, as the Spirit carried him to write, as those to whom this letter was directed listened, you moved, and you're still moving. This is your holy word. It's inerrant, infallible, it's inspired. It is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. So we as your children come and we submit ourselves before you. We trust your authority. We trust your word. We trust your spirit's power and ability to persuade and enable us to embrace this truth. But without your spirit, we can't see, we can't hear, we can't think, we can't feel rightly, so we are desperate, dependent, grateful that you have the power to do what only you can do. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I'm very grateful for the country that we live in. Celebrating the 4th of July over the last 10 years, probably eight of those 10 years I've been in another country, usually a communist country. Last year we were here and I was on the roof of one of the, the high-rise apartments not far from here with Robert and Cindy Ray and watched the, the, the city of Dallas light up. This last year I was up in, or, you know, just a few days ago up in Oklahoma experiencing a completely different type of Fourth of July with my family. Um, it would be affectionately called by members of my family a redneck Fourth of July. And it's, it is, that's all I can say. And because of that, it's awesome. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. My sister and her brother, I mean, her husband live just outside of Oklahoma County where it's legal to pop fireworks. And they have land and the people around them have land. And they don't really have very much money, but what they do have, they spend on the 4th of July. <laughs> the food is fabulous and thousands of dollars literally go up and smoke. And I videotaped a lot of it. And as I did, you can just hear me laughing in the background like a child because I can't believe that it's legal for these people to be blowing up the things they're blowing up. And then to pause as a family and just celebrate the fact that we live in an amazing land. It's broken and we know it. We can't deny that but I'm very, very grateful. 
A lot is happening in the news, which is horrific. And regardless of where you stand politically, it's still horrific. And the banter that's happening and the conflict that's happening is horrific as well. Then you see death and you see earthquakes. I mean, this weekend, for example, you've probably moved pretty quickly beyond the fact that a 7.1 earthquake hit this small town 150 miles outside of L.A. You heard, if you listen to the news over and over again, that it's the largest earthquake to hit L.A., Southern California, actually, since, or they said in two decades. Well, the earthquake they're referring to is the Northridge quake, January 17th, 1994, 6.6, 4.31 in the morning. I know the details because I was there. I was in the epicenter, my sister's house. The earthquake that hit Thursday was 6.9, and then the one that hit Saturday was 7.1. Friday, 7.1. 11 times the one that hit on Thursday in power, 15 times more powerful than the one that I was experiencing. My nephew lives about 100 miles south of the epicenter of the most current earthquakes. He says thousands of them have happened in the last week. It's just a continual rumbling every few minutes. If you've never experienced that, it's quite bizarre. The ground beneath you is not certain. I grew up in Oklahoma and we had tornadoes. I'm not afraid of tornadoes really, because I grew up with them. And what I like about tornadoes, that's a funny thing to say, is you have an idea that there might be one coming based on where you live, what's happening with the clouds, and weather people who chase them and can show you video of them. So you at least know when a siren goes off, it's time to get cover, get into a cellar. With earthquakes, you don't know. The scientists just simply say, one day there will be a big one. And when the big one comes, half of the United States will probably be cut off from the other half, but you don't know when it's gonna happen. It just happens. 4.31 in the morning, I'm laying next to my bride, sound asleep, when suddenly the house begins to shake. My first thought was a truck, a semi, a train, or something is driving through. My second thought was, God has returned. My third thought was, I'm still in bed, and God has returned. All of that rushing through my mind so quickly, and then a ceiling fan fell on my back. Yeah, her home destroyed. It was serious. For six days, we stayed in LA because we couldn't get out because of how bad the structure was, and we slept in the front yard. I watched the cars just bounce as hundreds of aftershocks took place. It is beyond anything that you can see really on TV. 66 people somewhere around there died, but the estimates were it would have been 30 to 40,000 if it hadn't have been 4.30 in the morning. And if it hadn't been 150 miles away from the metropolitan area of LA, we would be overwhelmed by what we're seeing. It's a big deal. Reflecting back on the earthquake in 1994, the LA Times released yesterday 
letters that were written to the paper during the 1994 earthquake. I just want to read three portions, three different people. The first says this. After the past two years, with urban unrest, massive layoffs, crime, floods, fires, and now the earthquake, we in Southern California continue to withstand an onslaught of troubles, tragedies, and sorrows witnessed by few other, if any, cities of our country. Yet there has been an incredible degree of courage, resilience, and determination among us to withstand these traumatic and testing times. I want you to remember those words, traumatic and testing times. Writing a little lighter, a woman by the name of Tracy Wallace on January 21, 1994, just a few days after the earthquake said, I am a Time subscriber, and many of my friends kid me because I love to read the paper so much. And I always have a huge stack of things I still want to read but don't ever have the time for. When the earthquake hit, my 20-inch TV fell off its shelf. Instead of hitting the floor, it hit my stack of newspapers and survived. Thank you, LA Times. <laughs> a third one reprinted yesterday, re-released yesterday. Think about what they re-released, what they chose to re-release. By a man named Jeff Douthwaite says this, he lives in Santa Barbara, or did at the time. If it takes an earthquake or two to awaken people to the reality of God and all associated mumbo jumbo, then it's a plus. Now, if I stop there, you might be really encouraged. But he writes on, and here you see some confusion. Such shock therapy may help people grow up. It should be abundantly clear by now to all that there is no God up there directing quakes or fires or floods, etc. It is simply the way the earth is made. There's a mixture of some really good theology, and I could have edited what he wrote to make it sound really good, and some really bad theology. Bad theology is dangerous. And when we experience traumatic and testing times, it's very easy for bad theology, theology that is not consistent with the Word of God, to creep into our thinking. And because of the traumatic times that we are experiencing, as the church, and as one expression of his church in which Jesus is the head, we must be careful, depending upon the Holy Spirit to guide us, to not let anything that is false move into our thinking about God, about his will, about his way, about his character. And because of the traumatic and testing times that we are experiencing, this is very, very important for us. What we see happening externally and what we feel happening internally is really important as a country. What we see happening externally around the world and what we see happening on our border is rarely traumatic. Internally, 
how we as a nation are dealing with that is profoundly broken and deeply troubling and really important for the church to rise up and say, this is who Christ is calling us to be in the midst of all that we're witnessing that's traumatic. This is what we must stand for as the people of God when we see tremendous human suffering wherever it is. This is the way we need to be praying as Matt beautifully did for our leaders in the midst of such trauma. What's happening just on the edge of our country? What's happening far away from our country? And what's happening two or three minutes from where I'm standing now is the presence of so much evil, so much human suffering, abuse, addiction, injustice, racism, lies, deception. You know it, don't you? It doesn't take long to see it. And what must we do in those moments? We must turn to God and to his holy word. I want to read, and I want you just to listen to it, a psalm that's deeply powerful. Christians ought to constantly be praying the word of God. And listen to this one particular psalm, which brings me so much hope, but it's honest. The psalmist writes, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man deliver me, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Let me pause. There, there is no other place to take refuge but in God. He's the only ultimate secure thing. He's the only eternally secure thing. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Very honest. In the midst of traumatic and testing times, it's easy to feel like, where is God? It's actually easy to draw the conclusion that God isn't in control of any of this. It's a deistic view. The psalmist writes on, why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? And here's this beautiful prayer. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Christian, pray that now and constantly. God, in the midst of all we're witnessing and the climate we're living in and we're raising our children and our grandchildren in, send out your light and your truth. Make me a man, make us a body that really listens to your word. Let them bring me this light and truth to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, my exceeding joy. God can be your exceeding joy in the midst of all of this trauma, in the midst of all this testing. And I will praise you with lyre, O oh God, my God. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall say again, praise him, my salvation and my God. The times we are in demand a dependency on God 
that most of us are tempted just to give lip service to and move towards a man-centered solution. We can't. There's nothing God can learn about our times. There's nothing God can learn about the complexity of the issues we are debating. There's nothing God has limited power to do. Pray your bold prayers and remember that your prayers can't outlimit what God is able to do. But pray to him. Pray boldly for nations to repent. Pray boldly for Christians to have profound compassion. Pray that we really will listen to the words that Jesus has proclaimed. For example, it's a sermon. So just listen to a portion of what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. That's so counter, isn't it? And it's so radical. And it's the words of Jesus as he preached the Sermon on the Mount. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Radical words then and radical words now. He continues, you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Christians, that must always be true in us. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That was in the first third of his sermon. But listen to the end of his sermon. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and do mighty works in your name? And Jesus declares, I will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then, and this is his conclusion, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. It was traumatic. It was a test. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house. It was traumatic. It was a test. And it fell and great was the crash of it. We must read his word and we must continually listen to his word. In 1994, during the Northridge quake, 
Though thousands didn't die, the majority of those who did die lived in one place. They lived in an apartment complex called the Northridge Meadows, multiple units over acres of land. All of these homes, these apartments, were designed to be earthquake-proof. It means given the engineering and architecture and then the building of them following those those blueprints, they could withstand a massive earthquake. And all of them did, except for one. One of the buildings collapsed, fourth floor to third to second to first, and those on the first two floors didn't have a chance. Days were spent burying, unburying them, bringing out the bodies. And then months were spent figuring out why did this one building collapse when the others didn't? And the answer, they didn't follow the blueprints. There was a compromise in the way this particular building was built. When there is a compromise to the word of God, we're building on sand. Sometimes we say we're not building on sand, but the truth is we're making things up or we're taking scripture out of context. That's building on sand. And when the traumatic times come, when the tests come, we begin to say things that scriptures don't say. We begin to have bad theology, which then impacts the way in which the church is seen to the world. Church must be seen as it was meant to be seen, as a people being ruled by the one true living God who's reigning, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, ever-present, who told us to behave in ways that are absolutely radical to our instincts and radical to the world around us. But because this is his organization, this is his organism, this is his way, the world can take note and say, how could those people do it? It's because of the love of Christ. It's because of the way in which Christ broke through those borders of sin to make us his own. He rescued us. So what does this have to do with this little letter called Jude? Turn there. Jude is writing because Verse three tells us that there's false teaching that's moving into the the believers. Verse four, it says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. These false teachers had crept in. They were practicing bad theology. They were abusing the grace of God and denying the only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. As this church, by God's grace and for his glory, seeks to be faithful, I pray that there's there's never anything that creeps into this pulpit that is false that whoever stands here proclaiming the word of God would proclaim the word of God, trusting completely, as I know I must time after time, in the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit to reveal what is true. The confidence I have is not ever in my ability or anyone's ability to stand here. It is in the one who's the head of his church, 
the one who has called us his own, the one who has said, I am going to keep you. The one who said in Matthew 16 to Peter, the gates of hell cannot prevail against my church. So Jude, writing to warn the people and protect them, moves then to this profound doxology. Last Sunday, I focused on verse 24, and I talked about the way in which we, or he's able to keep us from stumbling and to present us one day without fault, blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. How can he do that? He can do that because of the second half of this doxology. Listen to verse 25. To the only God, our Savior. Friends, the longer we preach to the only God, our Savior, the more it's going to cost you to walk through those doors and say you belong to this church. You may not believe it's going to happen in your lifetime, but it will your children or your grandchildren's. People that they work for might find that they belong to a church that would say to the only God, our Savior, one true God. And they might say, we can't fire you for that, but you're certainly not going to get a raise or you're not going to get promoted. Or maybe we'll find another reason to fire you even though that's the real one. The cost of standing for the truth of God's word is going to be greater than you and I can imagine but he is the one true God. He's the one and only Savior. He is the mediator that enables us to even have this conversation before our living God. And then James, or Jude, carried along by the Holy Spirit, gives us four attributes of God. The Holy Spirit could have given him many, but listen to the ones he gave him. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Glory means just weight. It means the overwhelming presence of God. Isaac Watts says, his glory shine with beams so bright, no mortal eye can bear the sight. Glory is just that weight, that exaltation, that power and presence that we can hardly even imagine. Majesty speaks of prominence and greatness. Incomparable, ineffable, regal presence. In the Greek, it's where we get the word mega. That's majesty. Dominion speaks of the presence of power, the strength, the might, the force. And authority matches that power with the right to exercise it, which God always has. These words were given to Jude by the Spirit to encourage the people then and to encourage the people today. God alone is all glorious. God alone is majestic. God alone has this dominion and God alone has this authority. Because of those attributes and all of his others, he is able to keep you and me. That's Jude's message. He's able to keep us in the midst of whatever trauma and whatever testing we see. We never need to deny 
what we see and know and encounter as suffering. We always must ask our Savior to give us the eyes of Christ, that we would respond every time with the hope that we have in him. Dear friends in Christ, he is keeping you. Jude started his letter with these words. Just listen. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to those who are called, we're praying today that tonight the children in Japan will hear that call. If you're a Christian, you heard that call. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. From the beginning of his short letter to the end, he speaks about the keeping power and reality of Jesus. He then gives these attributes, glory, majesty, dominion, and power or authority. And then he says this, and I'll close. Those attributes exist, have existed, before all time, and now, and forever. What does that mean? This is going to blow your mind. Before all time, eternity past, God possessed that glory. God possessed that majesty, that dominion, and that authority. Right now, he possesses that glory, that majesty, that dominion, and that authority. And one day, when he calls you home or he returns, and we all who are in Christ go into glory, we will see forever, 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 that glory, that majesty, that dominion and authority. So in this very, very short span of time, it's so short, your life is a breath, mine too, God is revealing to us who he is. And he's revealing to us that he's going to keep us. Even in the midst of all the trauma that sin and evil can bring against us or from within us. And we will stand. We will stand forever. All who are in Christ. Father in heaven, it's good to be with friends. It's good to be with brothers and sisters who walk through these doors today knowing something of the trauma of this world, but who are eager to hear from you. God, you're faithful and we are secure. Would you give us that hope and would we stand up in it and would we meditate upon it and would we sing about it, would we believe the words we sing because they are true. Holy Spirit, invade this place even as we sing and give us hope as we exit this place and shine so brightly through us, Jesus, that in the midst of all this suffering, the world would take note and we could say, it's because of the one who lives in me. His name is Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.